New York, 1986. Run, run, In front of a crowd of tens of thousands, a trio of rappers, Joseph Revrun Simmons, Daryl DMC McDaniels, and Jason Jam Master J. Mygel walk onto the stage. This is the place. For generations of young people, this was the stage you hoped to play someday with your name up in lights on the marquee of MSG, Madison Square Garden. These three guys go back quite a ways. Growing up in Queens in the 70s, they bonded over their love of b-boy culture, R&B, and hip-hop, a musical form born on the streets of the Big Apple. In 81, they formed their own group, Run DMC, and made news becoming one of the first rap acts signed by a major label. But Run DMC are more than just musicians. They're icons of style. Back in the day when Curtis Blow was making hits, he favored flashy sequin blazers and disco suits. But the Run DMC crew take the look in another direction. Casual streetwear, accented with gold chains and track jackets, black fedoras, and unlaced basketball sneakers. At Madison Square Garden, the trio fans out across the stage, busting into one of their newest songs. It's an ode to the group's favorite brand. And they know it's not just their Adidas's either. The three stripes are everywhere. Every city they go through, from Detroit to Boston to Chicago, the hippest kids are the ones wearing Adidas tracksuits and sneakers. In 1986, Adidas stands for something. It stands for urban cool. In the hometown crowd at the Garden tonight, they get it. The applause is sustained and deafening. It only gets louder when Simmons turns to McDaniels and begins to shout into the mic. D, take those shoes off your feet. What are those? Everybody in here, if you got Adidas on your feet, hold them up. 40,000 pairs of sneakers are hoisted into the air like a mass offering to a three-striped god. Enjoy a powerful business upgrade with Dell Technologies' Black Friday in July event. Get amazing savings with up to 50% off high-performance computers and tech built for business. And be able to take your office with you with Windows 10 Pro. Plus... Get great offers on Dell servers, monitors, docks, and more, all with easy financing options through Dell Financial Services. Call 877-ASK-DELL. That's 877-ASK-DELL. And speak with a Dell Technologies advisor today. Louisiana has unmistakably unique culture, world-class cuisine, and the nation's top-ranked workforce development program. This incredible state's business environment is powerful, rich, and diverse. It's the gateway to 38 states and the world with a port system delivering the most domestic cargo in the U.S. It's also where NASA and higher ed partners build rockets that will transport the first women to the moon. Discover Louisiana's investment resources at OpportunityLouisiana.com to learn how your company can gain a competitive advantage in Louisiana. From Wondery, this is Business Wars. I'm David Brown. 
we are tracing the sneaker rivalry between Nike and Adidas, two multi-million dollar sneaker companies that clashed in the 1970s at a time when professional sports and sports fandom was entering a bold new era. And this is Episode 4, Nike Air. Today we're picking things up in the 1980s, a decade of big hair and bigger shoulder pads. Before the end of the decade, though, the sneaker would take on a significance both bigger and certainly more enduring than either of those passing fads. Indeed, the sneaker continues to hold a special place today as both a fashion statement and a status symbol. But how did that happen? Well, as we'll hear, it had a whole lot to do with the clash of sportswear titans. But first... Let's get back to Run DMC, rocking a hometown crowd with my Adidas. In the crowd that night, an out-of-towner, a guy named Angelo Anastasio. He's flown out from the Adidas offices on the West Coast to see firsthand this Run DMC phenomenon. As a designer for Adidas, he feels his heart racing when the arena full of fans raise their sneakers high in the air. You can imagine. I mean, he'd heard this thing was big. But man, this is bigger than he dared to imagine. After the show, Anastasio meets up with the rappers backstage. How would you like to get paid to wear Adidas? The members of Run DMC don't need much time to think this one over. After all, they've already become the brand's loudest evangelists. A few days later, the news goes public. Run DMC has become the first hip-hop group in the world to sign a major endorsement deal with a sneaker company. The payout? One million dollars. In the weeks and months after Adidas officially signs Run DMC, American sales of the shell-toed sneakers soar. Billboards featuring the rap trio pop up in cities around the country. The rappers work with Adidas to develop their own line of tracksuits and superstar footwear, versions of which, by the way, are still being sold today. Soon competitors follow suit, signing up rappers to sport their brand. A young rapper named Dougie Fresh is repping Bally. The Beastie Boys are wearing Pumas. Grandmaster Flash never goes anywhere without his bright red pair of pony slam dunks. Sneaker culture and hip-hop culture are now permanently fused. But it's Adidas, with the first of the hip-hop endorsement deals, that's in prime position to reap the biggest benefits. In fact, in some ways, things at Adidas headquarters back in Bavaria have never been better. On volume alone, the German-based company far outpaces its rivals with annual sales regularly hovering around $1.5 billion. That's the equivalent of some $3 billion today. In the mid-80s, Adidas is the industry trendsetter, and its sneakers and apparel will become even more iconic as the years advance. But Horst Dassler, the chief of Adidas and the son of the company's founder, he knows that there are plenty of challenges facing the three-stripe brand. For one thing, there's the growth wave that Adidas has been riding since the 60s and 70s, I mean, how much longer can this go on? For another, there are now a lot of competitors wanting a piece of the sneaker action. Puma, the company run by Horst's cousin, Armin, is gobbling up market share in Europe. And in the U.S., Reebok is selling hundreds of thousands of pairs of aerobics and running shoes. But they're not the greatest threat to Adidas's continued dominance, not by a long shot. And Horst knows it. The greatest threat to Adidas's top position is a certain company out of Beaverton, Oregon, named for the goddess of speed. Though Adidas has scored a literal hit with the Run DMC campaign, 
Nike has been gathering momentum with a raft of its own smart endorsements, to say nothing of the shoes themselves. Sneakers that are changing the game with high-tech features like the Cortez, considered by many to be the first modern running sneaker. The little company that could has sprinted from annual revenue of less than $29 million in 1973 to more than $850 million just a decade later. Now, that's only half of Adidas's annual revenue, mind you, but still. The kind of exponential growth that turns up the heat on the Germans, that's for sure. Back in Beaverton, company founder Phil Knight draws up a list of Nike principles and distributes them to every new employee at headquarters. Point number one, our business is change. Point number two, we're on offense all the time. You know, Knight may have an MBA, but... This isn't a business plan. This is more a philosophy, a state of mind. And it's not just that Knight wants to impart what makes a successful company. He wants employees to understand where things could go wrong, too. Things like getting lost in bureaucracy and personal ambition make the list. The takeaway for new recruits is clear. You're empowered to be creative, but at the end of the day, you're part of a team. You know something, though? With all this talk of team spirit... Along comes a superstar who changes the business forever. On his shoulders, Nike will leap past every other sneaker maker on the planet, including Adidas. In 1983, a young executive named Rob Strasser writes a memo to his boss, Nike CEO Phil Knight. Individual athletes, he writes, even more than teams, will be the heroes, symbols, more and more of what real people can't do anymore, risk and win. You gotta know something about these two guys, Knight and Strasser. They don't really have a whole lot in common, to be honest. Knight is cerebral and measured. Strasser, he's an overweight, bearded career partier who rarely holds anything back. Knight likes to call him radically honest, and though he says he respects that radical honesty, well, there may be something Knight appreciates even more than that honesty— Strasser's intuition. Knight forwards the memo on to some of his other employees, as he knows his company is entering a crucial period of transition. Although Nike has made its name as a purveyor of innovative high-tech footwear, they're not alone in the chase. The same flood of sneaker companies threatening Adidas is threatening Nike, too. When Nike stumbles with a rare losing quarter, Knight is forced to lay off a handful of employees. At this point, Nike needs a shot in the arm, or as Strasser writes in his memo, it needs a hero. Well, as it happens, Strasser has spotted one. This is a guy who plays college hoops for the University of North Carolina. And Strasser's not alone in noticing this guy is special. The consensus among basketball insiders is that this new player, Michael Jordan, just might be the best all-rounder to come along in decades, maybe ever. He's a pure athlete, muscular, strong, driven, and charismatic. In 1982, Jordan leads the Tar Heels to an NCAA championship, beating out a Georgetown squad headed up by future Hall of Famer Patrick Ewing. In 1984, he's drafted by the Chicago Bulls. Long about this time, Jordan and his agent, David Falk, start discussing what sneaker he'll be wearing in his NBA debut. In college, Jordan wore Converse, but in high school... Jordan sported the three stripes, and Adidas are still his personal favorites. What about Nike? A lot of my guys wear Nike. Jordan's not interested. 
Just do what you need to do to get me with Adidas, all right? Had Rob Strasser not worked at Nike, it's possible that Jordan would have eventually gotten his way. But Strasser is a basketball geek of supersized proportions. He makes it his business to know every up-and-coming prospect in the game. And when he hears that Adidas isn't going to recruit Jordan, I mean, the company either can't afford it or maybe they don't realize what a star the kid is, well, Strasser pounces. Flight 2176 to Portland, now departing gate 17. That fall, Jordan and Falk, along with Jordan's parents, James and Dolores, fly out to Oregon to meet with executives at Nike's headquarters. Now, Jordan is reluctant. He's never worn a Nike shoe in his life. But after Falk pleads with James and Dolores, well, Michael agrees to make the trip out to the West Coast. In 1984, the Beaverton campus is nothing like the multi-million dollar lab it is today. And Jordan reluctantly trails his hosts across the modest green. He's making it a point not to smile. He's still holding out for Adidas. Together with his parents and his agent, Jordan settles into a small conference room. Insider Strasser, who can hardly control his enthusiasm, the Nike designer Rob Moore, and Sonny Vaccaro, the head of Nike's basketball operations. Phil Knight's nowhere to be seen. In fact, he's actually waiting in the wings. He's the closer, but Jordan doesn't know that. Strasser hits the lights. A highlight reel of Jordan's college days appears on a TV screen, the Pointer Sisters blasting from the speakers. And then as the montage reaches its climax, one of Nike's designers, Peter Moore, steps forward to hand Jordan a special gift. It is bright red and black, the colors of the bulls. It's a high top. A signature sneaker made just for this moment, exclusively for Michael Jordan. What do you think? Sharp-looking shoe, huh? Jordan seems less than impressed. Part of the reason I like Adidas is their shoes are lower to the ground, you know? These soles here, they're just too high. No problem, we'll we'll tailor them. Tailor them? Huh. At this, Jordan perks up. See, others who had courted him, like Converse, hadn't offered to customize any sneakers for him. Nike, Jordan thinks, Nike wants more than just a name. They may actually want a partner here. He trails the Nike crew to another conference room. There, Nike CEO Phil Knight joins him. When Sonny Vaccaro holds out two die-cast models of Mercedes automobiles, Knight pretends to be having a heart attack, clutches his chest as if no one had warned him that two extremely expensive sports cars might be part of the offer. Vaccaro plunges forward anyway. If you come with Nike, he trails off. Look, the implication is clear. If Jordan signs with Team Swoosh, there'll be more than sneakers and cash as compensation. And at this point, Jordan finally cracks a smile. That evening, the future Hall of Famer and his agent, Falk, huddle together for a debriefing. Jordan is emphatic. I don't want to go to another meeting. Let's go with Nike. Let's just go with Nike. Nike later offers Jordan a half a million bucks per year over five years. At the time, the fattest athletic sponsorship deal ever. An historic partnership has just been sealed. At the start of the 1984 NBA season, Jordan takes to the court in a pair of bright red and black shoes. Air Jordans, Nike calls them, after the new star player's penchant for taking elegantly to the sky, hoop after hoop. 
Where's my order? Where's my order? Where's my order? Break free from customer support monotony. Welcome to Intercom for Customer Support, the business messenger that uses chatbots, shared inboxes, apps, and more. Intercom's business messenger resolves questions that can be answered automatically, so customer support feels less like Groundhog Day and more like help is on the way. Go to intercom.com support to learn more about Intercom's business messenger for customer support. Birthdays, holidays, promotions, getting that last sprinkle donut. There's a lot in this world worth celebrating, but nothing is worth celebrating more than knowledge, especially knowledge that will pay off, like understanding how compound interest works, knowing how to check your investment professional's background, or figuring out your risk tolerance, or finally understanding all those terms your friends keep throwing around like ETF, ESG, and ICO. Go to Investor.gov today to learn about these investment products and more. How much do you already know about investing? Find out by putting your financial knowledge to the test with their new investment quiz. Investor.gov is your unbiased resource for valuable investment information, tools, and tips. Before you invest, Investor.gov. It's likely that the Air Jordans would have been a smash hit no matter what the NBA did. After all, these were sneakers worn by a player who could rack up an incredible 45 points in a single game, and that was as a rookie. But during the 84-85 season, league officials make a decision that ends up helping Nike immensely. They decide to try to stop Jordan from wearing his black and red signature sneakers. The NBA says the shoes don't fit the league codes, which stipulate that a player must wear shoes that not only match their uniforms, but match the shoes worn by their teammates. Well, that's when a company that's about to be famous for branding and marketing sets a new bar for ingenuity, too. In a commercial that hits the airwaves in 1985, a camera pans down slowly from Jordan's head to his black, red, and white uniform, right down to his toes, as he wordlessly bounces a basketball. On October 18th, the NBA threw them out of the game. Fortunately, the NBA can't stop you from wearing them. Air Jordans from Nike. It is difficult to overstate the impact the Air Jordan has on Nike's fortunes, and the fortunes of Phil Knight, of course. Nike's head honcho, a former runner, had founded his company around track shoes. But it is a basketball sneaker that is now defining the brand. To his friends, Knight begins speaking of a turnaround, a new chapter in Nike history. In just a few months, Nike ships one and a half million pairs of Air Jordans across the country. Stores draw up waiting lists for customers too slow to get their hands on a pair. In 1986, sales climbed to four million units. Children's and infants' versions are introduced. A Nike spokesman sums it up in a truly 80s fashion. Air Jordan has become our Cabbage Patch doll. It's one of the best things that's ever happened to us. But the Air Jordan is more than a fad. Soon, it's obvious that the power of the sneaker won't only be felt on the court, it'll be felt in pop culture, too. Rappers want to wear them, so do Hollywood stars. Yo, Mars Blackman here with my main man, Michael Jordan. Yo, Mike, Spike Lee, assuming the persona of Mars Blackman, his character from the movie She's Gotta Have It, tapes a commercial for Nike hyping the power of the shoe. Go, Mars. 
Is it an extra long short? And Jordans have a halo effect as well, boosting Nike as a brand and serving as an entree to the swoosh universe. Money's gotta be the shoes! Run DMC or don't. Adidas superstars no longer seem to shine like they once did. Money's gotta be the shoes! Now it's Jordan's customers who are climbing over each other to get those or another new Nike called the Air Max. Or it's the Nike Alpha Force with its iconic Velcro strap. Or it's the funky leopard-spotted Nike Air Safaris, which the rapper Biz Markie adopts as his signature sneaker. In what seems like no time, Nike's pulling away from every competitor in the United States, doubling and then tripling Adidas's American sales. Then in 1987, to help nail down Nike's dominance, Phil Knight approves a big increase to the marketing budget. Nike ups its marketing budget to $50 million to stay ahead of the competition. If there were any doubt before, it now seems settled. The tables have turned. In 1987, Horst Dassler, the businessman who put Adidas on the map in more than 150 countries, the man who helped transform his father's company into a multi-billion dollar concern, dies suddenly at the age of 51. For the German firm, the timing couldn't be worse. Not only is Adidas getting pummeled in the U.S. by Nike, but Phil Knight's getting ready to launch a European invasion. Right there in Adidas's backyard, its stronghold. And other rivals like Reebok are ambushing the Three Stripes brand from the other side, approaching annual sales of a billion plus. The closing years of the 1980s mark a new kind of low for Adidas. Shrinking sales, shrinking market footprint, and above all, a noticeable lack of the type of innovative new products that Nike appears to be able to crank out by the truckload. Adidas is flailing in 200 directions at once, trying to expand into areas it has no business being in, like casual outerwear. And inside Adidas's headquarters, well, it's basically become open warfare. After Horst Dassler dies, 20% of his shares go to his kids, Adi Jr. and Suzanne, But Horst also has four sisters, and they control the remainder of the company. The sisters begin working together, and they start agitating for a sale of the company. The once-proud three stripes losing out to Reebok and Nike, it's unconscionable, it's embarrassing. Adi Jr. and Suzanne initially fight their aunts, but they have a pretty high tax bill from their inheritance, and they eventually decide to give up their shares. The road to a sale appears to have been paved, And soon, Horst's sisters have located a potential buyer in the form of Bernard Tappy, a French businessman who puts together a $290 million offer using funding from a consortium of eight French, German, and Japanese banks. The sale goes through in 1990. The Dassler-owned Adidas era is over. The French now control the company. Employee morale hits a new low. But you know... You know that saying about it's darkest before the dawn? Well, in business, sometimes when things appear most dire, those with open eyes can spot the biggest opportunities. And in the case of Adidas, well, the first step toward the reinvention that would bring them roaring back comes courtesy of an unexpected source, Beaverton, Oregon. You remember Rob Strasser of Nike? We were talking about him earlier. He's the big, loud, hard-drinking guy who Phil Knight once called his MVP, the guy who spotted a superstar named Jordan once upon a time. 
though never one for hyperbole, Knight once gushed that he was ready to follow Strasser into any fray, any fusillade. But Knight and Strasser, at the end of the day, were, well, they were like brothers. The smallest thing could set them off. Sometimes it was dress code, like the day Phil finally lost it with Rob's baggy, loose-fitting work attire, promising to fine Strasser every time he didn't dress right, which Strasser took as an open invitation to keep showing up in baggy Bermudas. At some point, enough was enough, and despite the success of Air Jordan, Strasser left the company to start a new consultancy, taking designer Rob Moore along with him. Knight, well, he considered it a major betrayal. Let's go back to Germany. It's 1989. As Adidas is going up on the auction block, well, Moore and Strasser, now independent consultants, they get an invitation to visit. They know exactly what their old boss would think of such a thing, but hey, they don't work for Phil Knight anymore. So they accept the invitation and speed down the Autobahn to Adidas's headquarters. But as Strasser and Moore draw to a halt in front of the fortress that serves as Adidas's HQ, something dawns on Moore. He realizes just how far from home he really is. Deep down, he's a Beaverton man. He's got no business in Bavaria. Oh, fuck, let's get out of here. Strasser's not so sentimental. Absolutely not. And so, for the next several days, Moore and Strasser hunker down in intensive meetings with what remains of Adidas's leadership. Over one red wine-fueled dinner in particular at a restaurant near Adidas's headquarters, Moore tells an Adidas executive he can remember well when he viewed Adidas as his greatest rival. No offense, but for a decade, our mission was to kick your ass. The executive smiles and lifts his glass of wine. But Peter, you did kick our ass. That's why you're here. Moore and Strasser's great revelation comes the next day, when they're given time to explore Adidas's vast archives, a museum-quality collection of old Adidas shoes. What they are looking at inside that room is corporate history, but soon they realize they are looking at something else, too. They are looking at the company's future. A company that, before any other sneaker company did, focused first on the athlete. Before leaving Germany, the two consultants make two recommendations. The first is to double down on the kind of committed technical gear that Adi Dassler prized back in the day. Limit color palettes. Limit the number of futuristic features, the blatant Nike ripoffs. Stop trying to chase Nike and Reebok. That's a strategy that rarely works anyway. Better to reconnect with core functionality. Get back to doing what Adidas does best. And then Moore and Strasser make another suggestion. Adidas should under no circumstances abandon the classic brands like the Stan Smiths and the Superstars. Embrace the old stuff, appeal to the sentimental instincts of old Adidas fans, and revive and refine the classics. Keep those core shapes and colors, but update them with modern fit and modern technology like improved soles and lighter rubber. Within a few weeks, Strasser and Moore have been officially retained by their old arch enemy, they spearhead a line of performance apparel known first as Adidas Equipment and later as Adidas Performance, lines that are tailored to appeal directly to athletes. And they begin collecting the classic Adidas styles in a group called Adidas Originals. 
Strasser and Moore's changes don't have an impact right away. But these two former Nike executives have crafted a path that will eventually lead Adidas out of the wilderness and back into the thick of it. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Business Wars. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, or wherever you happen to be listening to this podcast right now. You'll find a link on the episode notes. Just tap or swipe over the cover art. You'll also see some offers from our sponsors, and we'd love for you to support our show by supporting them. Now, if you like what you heard, why don't you give us a five-star rating and maybe tell your friends how to subscribe, too. There's another way to support us, and that's to answer a short survey at wondery.com survey. We'd love for you to tell us what business war stories you'd like to hear. If you're interested in reading more about this topic, the author recommends a pair of articles he drew on for this episode. The first is David Woolman's 2016 profile of Rob Strasser from the July 2016 issue of Portland Monthly Magazine. The second is a 2013 article by ESPN's Daryl Rovell. It's called How Nike Landed Michael Jordan. I'm your host, David Brown. Matthew Scher wrote this story. Karen Lowe is our senior producer and editor. Sound designed by Bay Area Sound. Executive produced by Marshall Louie and Hernan Lopez for Wondery. Hi, I'm Brooke. And I'm Arisha. And we're the hosts of Even the Rich. So I want you to imagine you're about to go on stage and perform in front of 30,000 cheering fans. You pop a cough drop, take some deep breaths, tell yourself, you can do this. And that's when your brother steps into your dressing room. He tells you the police are here. Either you clean up your act or you'll get arrested. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. But you just laugh and say good, because the you in this story is Madonna. You're going to give the police a moment they'll never forget. Ooh, so what happens next? If you want to find out, you'll have to listen to the newest season of Even the Rich, The Making of Madonna. Follow on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, the Wondery app, or wherever you're listening right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app to listen ad-free.